With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 69th episode of my show. You know, I'm doing this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also want to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect privacy and also to talk about other issues related to these topics. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And also, I want to thank uh, all of you out there, all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you. I was a speaker on October 1st for the National Small Business Association, or better known as the NSBA, Cybersecurity Webinar. Now, that event addressed questions from small businesses about cybersecurity and major computer chip processing chip defects. Now, my part in that webinar was I spent around 15 minutes discussing the processor chip security and privacy vulnerabilities, and I gave advice and some actions to take to mitigate the associated risks. And I also answered several audience questions at the end of the approximately one hour and 10 minute webinar. Now, if interested in seeing and hearing this, you can go watch the broadcast on the NSBA Advocate YouTube channel. And within the YouTube uh, area, the website, just do a search for webinar colon protect your small business online and you should be able to quickly find it if any of you out there are interested in sponsoring one of my shows each month perhaps on a specific privacy information security it or compliance topic please get in touch and also keep all of your feedback and your questions coming in My November Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of October. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007, and I've done this in an effort 
to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues, but also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to be able to send out to their employees. I know what it's like to not have the budget within organizations to send out and get all these types of communications. So please go ahead and use them. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, here's my tip for the month. There was a report that was released in October about research that discovered six of the most popular Android apps that were specific to a large religious group were actually siphoning a huge amount of personal data from those folks using them and sharing that data with others and using it for other purposes. This is not just a problem with apps targeting this specific religious group or any other religious group. All types of apps are also targeting a variety of interest groups. So I want you to do this. Look, first of all, think about this. How many apps do you have on your smartphone or your tablet or other computing device? Now think about how many do you actually use? Look at your phone or device now and see how close you are to being accurate there. I always ask this at the start of my client privacy assessment projects. I have never found anyone within a group of key stakeholders in those meetings who actually knew all of the apps that they had on their device. Everyone had downloaded apps that they then had never used or they forgot about or they used once and then just ignored them. Those unused apps often are still siphoning data from your device and sending your data and associated information about your activities and your whereabouts and your conversations and a whole lot more out to one or more other cloud entities. And then those cloud entities share all of that data on out to other unlimited numbers of others. My tips for today, remove all the apps from your device that you never use. And I'm not talking about just disabling them. Completely remove them. Then for the apps you want to keep, disable them when you are not actually using them and change the privacy and security settings to the most strongly uh, available settings to protect your personal data. Now on to our topic today. So throughout my career, I've turned down many different types of projects because the organization that wanted to hire me wanted me to do something that was unethical and possibly even illegal. So here's just one of several dozen possible examples I could provide to you about this. I had one mid-sized healthcare provider organization approach me in the early 2000s, not long after I had actually launched my business, the Privacy Professor Consultancy. Now this business, this healthcare organization asked me to do a HIPAA risk 
risk assessment for them. Because, you know, I've done a lot of those and I was doing a lot of them at the time. Well, while discussing the project with them, I explained my process for doing the assessment. And they kind of cut me off after a little while and they said something like, well, you know, that sounds like a thorough process. And we're sure you're really great at performing these risk assessments, but we need to have the risk assessment finished and we need to have the report to provide to an auditor who's going to be here on site in two days. So, you know, we went ahead and and we did the risk assessment and we wrote the risk assessment report ourselves. All you need to do is to sign it and we'll pay you the same amount of money that you would have charged us to spend the two to four months actually performing the assessment. And you know what? We know that that would give you time to do other assessments at the same time it would have taken to do ours. So basically, we're allowing you to make twice the income in the same amount of time. We're viewing this as a win-win for both of us. Well, wow, (laughs) that was really something. Think about that. Well, I declined, of course, their unethical proposal. And when I declined, they actually were surprised. They said something to me like, well, we thought a woman who had just started her own tech business not long ago would need all of the income that she could possibly get. So (laughs) that's just one example. Now, this was not an isolated case. I've gotten many proposals throughout my career to do unethical and in some cases what I believe were likely illegal types of activities. I mean, every year of my career, often more than one such proposal a year. Now, I've been doing a lot of expert witness work in recent years, and since I've been doing that, I've actually turned down around half a dozen requests to be an expert witness because the organization uh, organizations approaching me wanted me to basically say what they wrote for me to say about their tech or about their use of data and so on. Well, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. Uh, Not only is it unethical and illegal in some cases, why would I want to throw away my career by doing something like that just for a a short-term amount of income? That is not worth it. I would never do that anyway. And it should no longer surprise me when I get these types of requests, but yet it still does. Recently, not long after I had a CEO of a small tech company try to get me to make false statements about his product, and I refused, and he then actually threatened me for refusing. Shortly after that, I watched a keynote from a longtime friend, and this keynote was titled Professional Ethics and Technology in the Cyber Age, and 
it just resonated so strongly with me, so much that I watched it twice, and I'm sure I will watch it again, and I, I had to cover this topic on my show. And today, I am just so thrilled to discuss professional ethics related to technology with my brilliant and insightful friend, who I've seen so often throughout the years predict the future as it relates to surveillance with tech, and who is also an IT privacy and data security expert, Dr. Katina Michael. So Dr. Michael, who is the director of the Society Policy Engineering Collective at Arizona State University, Katina's research focuses on the social implications of emerging uh, technologies with an emphasis on national security. Katina investigates privacy and security, data rights, trust, ethics, and human rights by using the co-design process to to grant the citizenry an opportunity to participate in large-scale systems development that impact their everyday lives. In 2017, Katina was awarded the Brian M. O'Connell Distinguished Service Award from the Society for the Social Implications of Technology. Katina is also the founding editor-in-chief of IEEE Transactions on technology and society, which will be launched in 2020. You can see a lot more about Katina in her bio on my Voice America show page. Katina, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and thank you for the very generous introduction. Well, as you can probably tell by my lead up, I mean, there is so much going on in the world and Uh, The keynote that you spoke at, it covered 15 observations on this topic, all of which I thought were so important. Now, in the time we have, I want to hit upon just a few of them and then go a little bit more in depth uh, within some of them on the related issues. So you had an observation. It was your observation number two within your keynote about profit maximization at any cost where you pointed out many distasteful situations and events that occur in our professional lives and you know we can detect them and the public can detect them and there are whistleblowers who sometimes reveal them uh, but often at the risk of the whistleblowers themselves and you gave some examples of uh, organizations taking money under the table so I'm wondering for our listeners uh, can you explain better than I have what your observation to for professional ethics and technology in the cyber age is all about yes I can um, I think it's a, a wonderful segue um, into discussing professional ethics when we can identify situations uh, that we've either seen firsthand or whistleblowers have actually uh, raised awareness about or is hearsay. All of these things as a young person going through an organization for the first time or second time, uh, say in the early 20s, is one of observation. You're just trying to make sense of the world around you. You have a piece of paper in your hand which signifies that you're qualified to actually apply yourself in a field of engineering, information technology or computing, and you're there out there, you know, with excitement, um, having your first paycheck, for instance. So this I, I want to target really to, to young professionals out there who 
are for the first time being exposed to the corporate world and are trying to make sense of organizational processes, uh, legislation and regulation surrounding their particular industry. But I was uh, in several corporations where you would bid for a job and in bidding for that job, you would be responding to a tender and usually those tenders uh, were in the hundreds of millions and in some cases into the billions over a 10-year period. So as a young person, you're trying to put these zeros on a spreadsheet and realize you have to truncate uh, and have to implicitly you know, show the zeros in a different way so that Actually, you can make sense of what you're doing. And so you're going through a competitive process and there are lots of interests at stake. There are your own. You know, you want to do a good job and um, for what you've been qualified for, actually apply yourself and be successful. Then there are the organizational interests. Uh, you want the company to succeed because the more they succeed, the more you'll get bonuses, either in the form of shares uh, or uh, monetary bonuses, you know, if you're in a sales engineering team. And then there are all of these other interests, like account managers, who uh, are commissioned to be awarded large contracts and may end up retiring uh, if they have, for example, 1% of the total contract price. I mean, uh, I've heard of many executives uh, retiring on uh, resorts uh, on the beach uh, once they've won one of these major bids. And we're talking about wide area networks. We're talking about 4G and 5G large-scale systems deployments. Uh, at the time I was employed, it was more 2G and 3G uh, and more broadband uh, going uh, across areas that had deregulated. But really what you've got to think about is the money, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to make money. And money is not a bad thing, um, but people would do some very interesting things uh, if they perceive they will have particular direct monetary benefit, um, either for the corporation, for their career path, uh, or for themselves in the form of bonuses. So yes, you see a lot of what I would call shonky endeavors taking place. Yes. And, you know, sometimes too, it seems like um, there's a lot of effort given to those trying to, you know, I don't know, justify telling lies or being unethical in their mind like um, I've seen a lot of organizations who had no background or experience in doing certain types of activities but they told their potential clients they did and just because they wanted to get the project and they justified it in their mind like oh well you know I'll be able to figure this out once I get started with it or how hard can that be Um, it was all at the the maximization of their profit and getting yeah. that experience. And, and, and Rebecca, you're right. And, you know, we, you talked about privacy impact assessments and we know, you know, they could be up to $100,000 for some of the bigger ones. Uh, in the smaller cases, maybe $10,000 uh, for that consultancy. But if you talk about products and service delivery, for example, cloud solutions, or at the time I was working for a large telecommunications vendor that is no longer uh, in operation. Uh, you know, one of the first companies that um, developed a digital circuit switch network and um, developed a PABX system. It's different when you're talking about technical products, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can have a consultancy which maybe costs 100000 maybe up to f- half a million dollars over a period of time. But when we're talking about products, they take something called a plan of record. They take a business development process. They take an innovation and research and development process. They can't be born out of thin air overnight. You just can't go, click your fingers, magic, and it appears. And what mm-hmm. used to happen in the early days when the world was going from voice to data is that 
competing companies to us uh, at the time were promising actually everything under the sun. Um, mm-hmm. The big thing at the time was the one meg modem. Um, another big thing was um, being able to send uh, high-speed uh, data over a mobile phone, um, which wasn't yet a smartphone, for example, beyond the, uh, the web protocol. So people used to concoct what we called brochureware. And there was no way a company uh, that was more about sort of a Rolls-Royce approach going through a particular gate service and system whereby, yes, there's testing done at this point, there's a check done at that point, there's a validation point at that point. If it's failing, there are warnings. Yes, we can keep going. And we have 99.999999% reliability, the six nines, um, is a very different approach to companies that say, I've got it. I've got the answer. And look, it's all brochureware. And so they would have pretty little clip art diagrams to things that didn't exist. And so they would go in with a contract first, be awarded the contract, and then have to make up for uh, a device that came out of nowhere. And I could point to modern-day devices. If we look at very advanced devices that are being proposed by, say, Elon Musk's Neuralink, here we are Mm -hmm. having this hype that we're going to connect the brain to technology, the hardware to the wetware, and we're being promised all of these amazing things like memory enhancement. But to me, it's really brochureware. So here we are, this massive amount of investment, these backers, these shareholders coming to the fore and going, we're going to invest in this. But it's brochureware. There is no mm-hmm. validity behind it at this point in time. Well, and oftentimes that's called vaporware too, right? Yeah. Uh, describing things. And that's just, you mentioned, I love the fact that you um, kind of draw attention to those early in their career, but I have a lot of listeners from universities and even in high school. And so hopefully those of you out there still in high school or college, please listen to this because this is so important as you go forward in your career. We don't want you to take a wrong step and do things uh, make promises based on vaporware or brochureware and uh, mislead those that would be buying into them. Um, so, yeah. Well, what about w- whistleblowers? And I mentioned that. And of course, you're here um, uh, in the United States. So we're hearing a lot about whistleblowers lately and their safety. And I know in a couple of those examples I gave, I reported the the people. I was a whistleblower, I guess you could say, um, but I thought it was important to do so. So, I mean, what concerns is there that you've seen for whistleblower safety and others trying to do the right thing? Well, we have a great example in Edward Snowden um, with his leak of the, you know, purportedly million NSA. Uh, records and files that he was able to download uh, and then systematically uh, identify a few of these for consumption to the general public and journalists. And uh, as you can see, uh, obviously, he's, you know, it, it's uh, controversial whether he's actually free mm-hmm. or not uh, at the moment. And he disclosed a global surveillance disclosure, which is probably one of the biggest things you could ever disclose. Uh, he, he looked at the prison surveillance program. He looked at how uh, the government was spying on its own people uh, and then connections between the Five Eyes nations. So there is that, and that is at a very big scale. Then we could look at organizational, very much um, private organizations from small to large uh, enterprises. And really the first thing that happens is that you think about your livelihood. If you want to mm-hmm. go out and uh, pronounce something as fact, you better have your facts right. 
um, because if you do identify an issue to a superior or to human resources or whatever vehicle is there uh, for actually discussing these things, um, you better be um, prepared to actually go through the whole process, which actually may be linked to legal liability, right? So mm-hmm. it's not just that you're losing your income and your salary, potentially, if you're ousted from your organization or you feel you can't work at the organization you're working at, but then you may have uh, a lawsuit. And it's not to fear um, whistleblowing. Rather, it's to look at avenues of safety and protection before you do go about disclosing something. And to also use the avenues in your workplace uh, for actually raising concerns. And there are ways to do this. You know, be tactful. It's a bit like a, a, a victim of domestic violence, for example, won't go and confront uh, the, the spouse or the partner who's being violent and say, you know, you're doing this to me and I'm going to lock you out the day you leave, you know, to go to work. That you have mm-hmm. to be tactful. And, and many people from Amnesty International have said, well, women have to respond in a certain way. They will wait. They will prepare. They will get some extra income behind them. There's a thought process and strategy that goes into this process. We can't just be doing this in folly or innocence um, because there's heavy weight uh, between parties. Um, so the first thing is to become aware of what your protections in your nation state are, in the way you live are. Um, sometimes there is whistleblowing legislation or public disclosure statement legislation, which have been controversial. In Australia, uh, about four months ago, we had a journalist come out and talk about something um, to do with um, the Australian Federal Police uh, and their handling of a particular case, and her home was raided. Um, after our current Prime Minister was put into Parliament. So it was like, well, we have a public interest disclosure law, but it didn't seem to counteract uh, the raid that occurred on the journalists. And journalists, of course, are bringing us uh, news of disclosures. So it it was very interesting that that act was never really enforced during this raid. In fact, the Australian Federal Police even raided the um, Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, with limited warning and the ABC mm. opened up their offices uh, to this investigation but I think you have to be sure of your facts you have to have the evidence and you have to have planned this out very well um, and to ensure that you actually are protected by some legislation you have to be smart and wise about these things Oh, very good points. I mean, definitely the laws need to be there. And like you said, hopefully they're being enforced. But that documentation, I think that's a very important thing, too. I mean, if uh, people are saying or doing things, if you start documenting it from the point in time where they're, you know, creating different types of situations of concern, that documentation is going to be so important for you to have, um, you know, depending upon how things turn out later on. Yes, I mean, Um, when uh, Edward Snowden, uh, you know, came out and talked about PRISM, talked about the fact that um, the government was actually accessing stored communications, instant messaging chats, real-time notifications of an email event, imagine that, or a login to a sent message. Real-time notification of a chat logging or logout, email, VoIP, uh, web forums, um, social network, online messaging, photos, wall posts, I mean, videos. I mean, this is crazy. And they had a splitter device that was actually, Um, you know, redirecting traffic. So if that is happening and you have the documentation, yes, it will save you. 
And, and that's so important. I'm sorry to cut you off, but we have a, a break that I need to to quickly uh, stop here for, and we'll continue our conversation when we get back. But right now is the time for a quick break from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Dr. Katina Michael about professional ethics and technology in the cyber age. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Uh, please stay with us. We're going to be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Katina Michael about professional ethics and technology in the cyber age. And we were talking about whistleblowers before the break, but I want to move on to another topic that I think is so important and that Katina touched upon in her webinar that I encourage all of you to watch. And I put a link to her webinar in the show description. So um, observation three was about the design and development of predatory products, especially as they apply to technology. And Katina, from your webinar, you describe how products seem to be provided to serve customers' needs, but actually are created to siphon personal data, which is viewed as the new oil. So can you give uh, some examples of these types of predatory technology products? Sure. And um, I think people might be surprised by the products that I mention. Um, But our Chrome uh, browser, for example, is one of those products uh, that you know, no matter how much you try to control, uh, is sending back information and uh, having that data crunched and providing new filters to you. Um, you know, that is being monitored and surveilled. I don't mean by people, but by machines. And then if we go along this route, we now not have just browsers that we type into that type into those search boxes, but we have things that we talk to and call out to, uh, such as Amazon Alexa and recordings um, being sent to wrong people accidentally, uh, Amazon staff listening into Alexa conversations, some of these devices being linked back uh, to other 
devices and, and not being secure. And I can mention, for instance, uh, the Nest device uh, of Google that had a secret microphone in there that Google forgot to tell us about. So there you were installing a security device or, for example, a smoke detector. And in the case of Nest Secure, we had a device that had a secret microphone. Now, how does that accidentally happen? Um, yes. It wasn't just doing human activity <laughs> monitoring you know, and spying. It was actually listening to your conversations, which is really lame. Well, yeah. I mean, Katina, you know, I started my career, um, my degrees are in systems engineering, and I, I saw that, and I'm like, if I was engineering a device, I'd know that I had <laughs> built in a listening capability. How can you how can you say truthfully and believably that, uh, oh, sorry, that was just an accident, but yet I think a lot of people believed him. They did. I mean, I, I don't believe them. Of course, they put it on the product spec after the fact. But, you know, yeah. you go to the Ring doorbell now, which is surveilling uh, the scape across your front yard. Uh, once you install that doorbell device, it's really a video doorbell. Um, it actually interacts, uh, in the States anyway, 405 police agencies, including one in Chandler in Arizona, here where I'm from, uh, have um, rig, rigged up so someone could be approaching your front door if they don't match the right characteristics there may be an alert sent back to base in one of these police agencies now the question is is this a discriminatory kind of practice who are they identifying the, you know, the postman, someone who's hit the doorbell twice the delivery person um, the Uber Eats person you know, who are they looking at and the other thing is individuals who have purchased this ring device don't realize that it's actually rigged back to police departments. They haven't actually physically consented at any point to their knowledge. So there's another device um, that's out there in the market, and there are many. I mean, I was confronted by about seven or eight uh, when I visited Target recently. They all cost $199. So the Ring Spotlight Cam. Um, then we had the Arlo device, the Netgear device, um, uh, uh, another one called Tend, T-E-N-D, uh, Canary. I mean, these all look so innocent. I'm tending to you. I, I, I'm a canary, you know. But in fact, all it, all it is is a front door surveillance device uh, being rigged back to, to base. It's quite scary, actually. Well, and I like that you brought up to the fact that some of these devices use algorithms to identify through some sort of artificial intelligence whether or not there might be um, a situation or a, a person who you should be concerned about. And what really bothers me about that is the fact that a lot of these artificial intelligence algorithms are not built or tested using a diverse uh, demographics. So oftentimes you end up with bias and you end up with, like you said, discrimination. So, you know, are you going, are these devices going to be sending out alerts about people who maybe their algorithm was um, faulty about, was, did not consider? And so now all of a sudden you have somebody who's on somebody's watch list as being suspicious. I mean, that worries me too. And, and it should worry us. I mean, uh, in Singapore, Fitbit have supplied uh, free trackers to the public uh, for their health program. And so that may actually influence their health insurance premiums. In the States, mm. we had our own president here uh, talk about the potential to use Fitbit data to stop mass shootings. Um, and they mm. call that the HARPA approach instead of the DARPA approach. And now we have all 
you know, if that's not nonsensical enough, I mean, the algorithms will be determining whether you're a mass shooter based on your data, on your Fitbit, on on your wearable. It's nuts. Um, Then we've got these, you know, Google trackers uh, through smartphone apps that um, you think your location history is off, but you're actually being uh, tracked in real time. And then these IoT devices in our bathrooms that we're inviting into our homes or on airplanes sensing our bathroom use and tracking us with our bathroom use and absolutely even the things uh, that are measuring whether it's alcohol, uh, food intake or otherwise. I mean, this is is pretty much the next level of invasion of privacy, I think. It's not just a device that will help you get healthy. It's a device that knows actually what you're doing. And it, and it seems like... Um, these devices, like you'd mentioned Amazon Alexa, I think people get so used to just asking a question and have somebody, somebody come back and tell them the answer. I think they get used to doing that, and then it's like, oh, well, okay, if they're taking a recording of this, why, you know, I guess I'm getting some benefit in return, but um, that seems kind of like a predatory type of tactic because they don't realize that all of that data is being mixed in and shared with a lot of data that's coming from other sources. And so all of a sudden you have people's digital biographies being built in huge um, data centers throughout uh, the world. You're very right. Very right. And I think many people don't realize that their voice commands are actually going from speech to text, and that text is being mined over time. Um, Amazingly, this artificial intelligence that you're talking about, the machine learning, the predictive Mm -hmm. analytics, might these machines be able to predict what's coming next? And one of the things I get frustrated about, and I mentioned in my talk, all of these principles coming out on AI and robotics and autonomous systems from Google, from Intel, from IBM, from um, the NHS, from Microsoft... But none of these people, none of these organizations actually stick to the principles that they're producing. You know, they talk about ensuring your body's reliable or ensuring there is no harm or that data is kept private or blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, they're creating products counter to their own um, responsible metrics or their own principle of AI and data metrics. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. it, it manifests in commercials. Listen to this. This is the Nest thermostat commercial where one of the um, figures in that commercial says when the internet comes to life and all these gizmos turn on us, these kids won't be able to run away on these shriveled little calves. Will they love their Nest thermostat then? I don't think so, right? So it's almost like it's an overt abuse of a production of predatory practice and products as if the the society is sort of numbified or dulled or like we've become sheep in buying these products without questioning what is happening to our actual data. Yes, yes, very good point. And I know you've you've worked so much with like um, medical devices and embeddable devices and so on. What worries me about the IA or the AI, the artificial intelligence or machine learning Um, algorithms and programs used within those types of devices is again I don't I just don't see that the testing has been done to actually have um, 
accurate results for everyone. It seems like the testing is done on a very limited demography. So if you have someone who's very young or very old or of of different nationalities or different races or different sizes, super skinny to obese or having different types of, um, you know, health problems, it doesn't seem like the uh, results are going to be accurate. Do Do you think that there's more organizations who are putting these out that are accidentally predatory because they just haven't been thorough enough? Or do you think they weren't thorough enough because they didn't want to discover all of these other problems that uh, were going on? It's a fair question. Um, It depends uh, whether the organization is a startup, I think, um, whether Mm. the approaches uh, being used have been tested. I mean, I know we're putting a lot of faith in facial recognition systems, for example. Uh, One of the most, uh, to me, overt and sad abuses of human rights is the eye tracker system uh, being implemented in schools across China, where a device Mm. sits on top of a blackboard or whiteboard and monitors the eye movements of children who are in the classroom and then predicts some kind of quantitative assessment based on the focus of the child and whether the child is in one of seven states, angry, sad, happy, neutral, and otherwise. And I start to think about the fallacy that these quantifiable approaches are promoting. When, if you understood how, for example, facial recognition systems work, they don't work as in providing one response. They work in a confidence level. They don't, they're not highly accurate, infallible systems as is being promoted by all of these different um, security and, and private organizations. So I think um, uh, it's bad practice rather than saying we don't know how the technology works or we don't know how the machine learning algorithm is actually working. We, we just let it loose and it's working. But then we go back to some of the uh, bots that have been unleashed by Microsoft like Teo. Uh, and I don't think they realized at the time, they do now, that the kind of data you feed your service or bot or system with actually determines the kind of output you might get. So it was let loose on the internet. It was able to uh, make racist Nazi commentary and, and other vulgar statements online. And, and then we look at products for children like Mattel's Hello Barbie or My Friend Kayla. And then you've got remote baby monitoring devices that are not secured properly. All of these things, I mean, imagine an AI conversation between a child who's five years of age and a Hello Barbie. Uh, and this has been stated by others who have used the device. The device asking the child, do you like your sister? I mean, what is it going to Mm -hmm. say next? Are you hungry? Do you want to go to McDonald's? Um, And so these kinds of Alexa embodied in dolls, for example, embodied in robotics, embodied in supposed carers, these are the things that we have to watch out for uh, over time because I think they are about manipulation. So, you know, my studies have always shown while there is an element of care, there is an element of convenience, the underlying dimension is always control, no matter what system you look at in these kinds of scenarios. Yes, and it, it kind of ties back to that first topic we talked about, to profit maximization at basically any cost. Um, I want to move on to your observation six, because I think so many listening today will really uh, relate to this. It's about ethics questions that employees may ask, but 
apparently not enough employers are asking with regard to like surveillance, surveillance of employees using a wide range of methods, tools, and tactics. And it seems like it's just increasing at an incredibly fast rate. So what are some of these methods that you've looked at that especially those that may not be obvious to employees uh, as actually being surveillance tactics. So definitely we've had the age-old monitoring of your login and logout and perhaps even keystroke analysis, even uh, histories of the websites you visit uh, in your lunch hour or throughout the day. Um, There are also pinhole cameras now recording uh, people in different locations. Not always. Uh, I have learned in some larger organizations when uh, an individual uh, comes under suspicion or comes under any kind of, uh, you know, identification for any reason, there may be practices instituted at that point and they may be um, forensic desktop-based or mobile-based uh, applications uh, that are, uh, are better than the ones that I just mentioned, but also uh, video surveillance um, and not just at the workplace. Um, many different countries and states, you, you don't always have federal-level workplace surveillance laws, and in some places they're completely absent. The organizational and the employer always has the upper hand over the employee. But I would say pinhole cameras um, have become very cheap and very easy to install and very easy to look at remotely. Um, We've also got organizations now asking their employees, would you believe it or not, there was a Guardian uh, article about this last month where some employees were asked to use wearable devices, not just hand uh, hold a contactless card that they're required to check in and check out of a bathroom facility, for instance, but an actual wearable device like a Fitbit. And so when we're Ah. quantifying, yes. I mean, imagine in the future, there may be a scenario where where we say, you know, you either get a Neuralink or sorry, I'm not employing you. Or, you know, you carry this mobile device that I'm tracking you on uh, for your safety. Okay, there goes that dual purpose use. This is for Mm -hmm. your safety, but it's also for my ability to surveil you. And so this is the dual purpose of technology, but I think um, employers would be shocked uh, at some of the forensic techniques being used both on their smartphones. You know, don't leave your smartphone hanging around on your desk, for instance. Uh, In the corporate intranet, if you're going to do something that's personal, don't use your work computer. Um, This is a basic thing. You know, carry two phones, one which is your your work phone and one that is not your your work phone. It's a personal phone. Um, But I've seen these things. I mean, wearable cameras may may one day come in as, uh, you know, buttonhole cameras on your T-shirt or on your your shoulder strap uh, or on your belt buckle to basically, you know, be your 24 times 7 alibi in the strong room of an organization with sensitive uh, data in the cloud. I mean, who knows? But you you should be, there's an expectation of surveillance, I think, in the workplace, unfortunately. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, and something else you talked about in your webinar, you discussed a quantified professional versus a qualified professional. And I thought that was so insightful. Can you explain this to our listeners? So the quantified individual is one where everything is being measured. Um, there was a talk here at ASU uh, by someone that was working uh, in collaboration with the NSA. 
and uh, they were monitoring the way that the NSA agents actually work. And um, in that case, it was just a standard desktop application, but they were being quantified in how they do their specialist services over one uh, file versus uh, jumping to a browser versus jumping to a specific app in the organization versus doing something else. And this kind of um, emergence of the quantified, how do you do your work, how long does it take you to go from A to B, and are you good enough? Is there something wrong with you if you're not hitting those targets? But the qualified professional, to me at least, is one that doesn't require this kind of quantification. There is a creative process. We are not machines. We are not robots. Um, yes, there are processes we have to follow to, to make a hamburger, say, in McDonald's. There is one way to make a Big Mac. You know, you do this first, then this. But we don't want to go back to a sweatshop ideology of how the Nike shops were in the 80s uh, where there was, you know, all these uh, places of fashion design where people would make several cents for a whole day's work. Uh, and then there was an outcome and they would sell the, each individual garment for hundreds of dollars. We don't want a sweatshop mentality in our current workplaces. We want one where there's freedom, there is respect for the human, and there's ethics, professional ethics in every sense. You value the person, not so much the amount of files that they generate. Yes. And, you know, it almost seems to me like these types of devices and tools are almost being used, you know, as we become have more requirements for being more diverse and more inclusive within work um, environments and have laws that give very specific uh, types of, of actions that organizations need to think about or not do to exclude certain groups. It's almost like some of this technology can get around those rules by, yeah. um, you know, being created in ways that will say, oh, well, we aren't, you know, we aren't visibly doing anything that violates these laws, but based on the results of these tools, we can kind of tell, you know, what's going on. I've seen several uh, news reports that talk about, you know, those type of things that were at least um, thought that they were going on. Uh, are there some examples of real life situations that you found to be just egregious with regard to organizations quantifying their employees? Yes. Um, as far back as 2007, I was following location-based services as part of my research, and there were a couple of U.S.-focused uh, lawsuits uh, that were against different players. One was of a driver who had rented a vehicle. Another one was of a social worker who was claiming for remuneration they had never made but didn't realize that their uh, cell phone was being tracked by their employer, who was a government uh, agency. And so here we had um, the government agency with the correct assumption, uh, allegedly, that the employee was charging for work uh, where they weren't at the location at the time that they had specified, but then we're not all robots. So the person who won the case was actually the employee because they were never being told by taking this phone, you are signing up to the small print, which says we are tracking you even after hours. Um, and so what the government agency was doing was recalibrating between the claims being made by the employee for remuneration and what they could see as fixed location-based um, units, X and Y coordinates, longitude and latitude, based on timestamps um, and direction and other things. So what we have is an interesting case. Does GPS not lie? 
Uh, it does on occasion. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've run very extensive trials based on speed, distance, time, based on the direction I'm traveling, based on um, a whole number of altitude factors, uh, temperature readings on these sensors. And sometimes they've, instead of uh, pinging me to Australia in Wollongong, they've pinged me to Derby in the UK. Well, obviously, I wasn't there. And I've given Mm -hmm. out these coordinates to students, but people trust technology. And so there's a lot of misinformation. I think MG Michael's ubervalence here is is quite topical because data can misrepresent. It can Mm -hmm. be manipulated. Um, And there's a lot that's happening with misinformation. So if you're making claims based on data generated by a device, that's not always reliable, then you can come into these very serious situations where you're claiming one thing against another, which is false. Yes, uh, I, and that's such an important point. Just because it's technology does not mean it is correct. Um, humans made the technology, right? So humans are flawed, and what they create can also be flawed. We're getting, believe it or not, we're getting close to the mm-hmm. end of our our hour here, but what is a key point about all the topics that we've discussed today that you want listeners to take away from the show? I think we need to redirect our attention on our innovations. And we've got to think we have several life worlds. One is, yes, as a developer potentially in this space, we could be technologists and engineers, which is wonderful. How do we positive positively influence the workplace? How do we drive our technologies to be in the public interest? How are we inclusive in the development and design process of these products? I mean, surely if uh, the Nest Secure device had been incorporating what citizenry want, what consumers want, yes, we want security. That is not a bad thing. We want safety. Sometimes we need um, care monitoring, right, for patients. The question is, how inclusive are we of citizen perspectives and potential future consumers. How do we incorporate them in the development process? And that's called co-design. That's called bringing people into a participatory process, walking alongside us as we design and develop and deploy. But it's obvious what's happening, happening here is that when we run, as we are running now, to be first to market, to have a new upgrade, to have vaporware, to have the next brochureware, we are negating the value of the participant who's actually the final end user. So as engineers, we must reintroduce the, the client and the client's client and the client's client's clients into this whole design process and give it some time. Don't be so rushed to get to the Neuralink, which is supposed to be you know, the, the next best thing for humanity. We've got to be tempered and we've got to have processes that we follow and there are gates. You know, I don't want to go back to the slowness that lacked agility uh, of the 80s, but I also don't want to say, well, tomorrow there's a product that's available if I've conceived it yesterday. That is not the right ethical approach. We've got to make sure that we're embedding ethics and values by design in the process. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I, I want to just repeat it one more time, too, to all of you organizations out there who are startups, who are tech companies, who are creating any type of software or hardware technology that impacts people, and also to the students, high school and uh, college students, co-design, incorporate co-design within your designs and your plan and your testing, just like Dr. Katina Michael said, because if you don't, those uh, results are not going to be accurate and you could hurt people. Um, thank you for that so much, uh, Katina. I sure enjoy talking with you every time we do have a discussion. 
Well, I love it, and I'm hearing that you're about 100,000 listeners through at the moment, and I hope that doubles in the near future for you. Well, thank you so much, and I'll definitely uh, need to have you on so we can continue these discussions again sometime. So uh, today I've been speaking with Dr. Katina Michael about professional ethics and technology in the cyber age. Hey, all of you out there, please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic let me know. Do you have a topic to suggest I cover or a guest to suggest? Or do you have some other sort of issue that you think my listeners would be interested in hearing about and uh, that you'd like to hear me you know, include within one of my shows? You can contact me with these types of feedback using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into my show each month, and if you cannot make the scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. You can find all the recordings of all of my past shows on iTunes and Stitcher.com and TuneIn. And, of course, you can go to the VoiceAmerica.com Business Channel website and find all of them there in chronological order. And then I also have on my PrivacyGuidance.com uh, website, I've put all of the shows into different topics on one of my pages there. Uh, I urge all of you, between now and the next time I come back with another new show, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or just encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy, especially as it results to our topic today. You know, think about that. Are the people you're entrusting your personal data to and who are taking your personal data, are they using it ethically? Are your technology tools you're using, is that data being used ethically? Until our next show, make sure that everyone you share your data with, including your employers, are doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. 